This has been possibly the most glorious spring migration I have ever experienced. I'm way behind most years in the number of species I've seen so far, partly because I've been so rooted to home, first trying to avoid COVID and then stuck here being sick with it. But also, thanks to the exceptionally cold April and May so far, migration is very late. Late migrants haven't arrived in any numbers yet, but that means some earlier migrants have been staying put here for a surprisingly long time in surprisingly large numbers. One oven bird showed up on May 13th and sang away just about all day every day through the 18th, and I've been inundated with some of the most colorful and photogenic birds of all. Rose-breasted grosbeaks and Baltimore orioles were especially abundant. I've had at least 20 of each on some days, but also more scarlet tanagers, hummingbirds, and indigo buntings than usual. But of all the colorful birds I've seen, my favorite has been one particular little Cape May warbler. Cape Mays eat insects year-round like other warblers, and on their breeding grounds they specialize on spruce budworm. But during their winters in the West Indies, nectar and fruit provide 30% of their food intake. Indeed, their tongue is curled with a brushier tip than other warbler tongues, specifically to take in fluids efficiently. Between their breeding and wintering grounds, Cape Mays also search for sweet food sources and can become rather dependent on them during cold snaps when insects are harder to come by. I've seen individuals take over a yellow-bellied sapsucker's sap wells, chasing off every other bird, including the sapsucker. Cape May warblers are considered an economic pest by vineyard owners in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia because they puncture grapes to drink the juice. During their arduous spring migrations, Cape May warblers have adapted to the human landscape by developing a search pattern for oriole and hummingbird feeders. I first discovered this in 2004 during another very cold May when I had as many as 30 Cape Mays at a time feeding in my yard on oranges, jelly, suet, and sugar water. One even figured out how to hover at a hummingbird feeder. So far this year, I've had at least a dozen, quite likely more, visiting my five Oriole feeders. One adult male appropriated my home office window feeder, along with a chunk of the nearby spruce tree, for several hours on Saturday. Cape May warblers are tinier than chickadees, but this little guy was bound and determined to keep everyone else away from his little empire. I watched him chase other Cape May warblers and 15 other species. The chickadees, red-breasted nuthatches, starlings, siskins, goldfinches, and blue jay were not even competition. Not one of them was coming to the fruit, nectar, or jelly. During his reign of terror, I could not get photos of blackpole, blackburnian, and black-and-white warblers in my spruce tree, even even though they weren't even looking at the feeder. 
The other species he chased were actual competitors. Hummingbirds, Tennessee warblers, and other Cape Mays were at least in his weight category, but he also successfully drove off orioles, rose-breasted grosbeaks, a gray catbird, and my rare visiting summer tanager. The heaviest Cape May warblers barely tipped the scales at 15 grams, which is less than half the weight of orioles, catbirds, and the tanager, and not even a third of what rose-breasted grosbeaks weigh. I lost track of him after a bunch of other Cape May warblers arrived with three or four pressing into that feeder at once so he couldn't possibly keep them all away. But during his brief yet tyrannical reign, this little Napoleon truly was the emperor of Peabody Street. When he reaches the end of his migration in a lovely, dark, and deep spruce forest, I hope he meets up with his Josephine and they produce many tiny nude despots. I'm Laura Erickson, speaking for the birds.